The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to our sermon text, Matthew chapter 14. We sung about God feeding his people abundantly with that manna because of the connection that we find in our text this morning as Jesus feeds the multitude. We're reading from Matthew chapter 14, the first 21 verses. So I invite you to listen carefully and worship the Lord by receiving his word this morning. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children." Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's seek, ask his blessing as we receive that word. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would look upon us in your abundant grace and kindness and bless us, Father. As we hear your word, we pray that we would know the power of your spirit at work in us. Each one, grant, O oh Lord, that we would receive that word with reverence and awe, with thanksgiving and with praise. Grant, O oh Lord, that our knowledge might deepen, that our faith might be strengthened, and that our love for you might become even more fervent. Use it to to the end that in our lives, O Lord God, your kingdom might come and your will would be done. For we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Herod's feast or Christ's feast? 
Which feast will you choose this morning? Which will be yours? I suppose the Gospel of Matthew kind of calls us to, demands that we make that choice. This is the Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. We've been seeing it's a Gospel, a Gospel of the Kingdom, and it's the Gospel of a Kingdom which stands in stark contrast to the Kingdom of this world. And I would suggest that we can rightly see those two opposing kingdoms as kind of symbolized by what we see in our text this morning, two very different banquets or two different feasts. Which banquet will be yours? Will you feast with with Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, or will you feast with Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of the carpenter? Remember last week he was ridiculed as such, right? This is, this is the one, the, the, the son of the carpenter, as he was ridiculed even in his own hometown. This morning we're covering two sections, which we quite easily could have taken up separately. That first section, verses 1 through 12, is about Herod hearing of Jesus' fame. Matthew recounts what, what Herod did to John the Baptist. So it's kind of its own separate section. And then we have this this feeding miracle, the first of two feeding miracles in Matthew's gospel. This one is sometimes grouped together with these miracles which we see uh, in, which close out the, the chapter here, chapter 14. R.T. France, in his outline of Matthew's gospel, designates the, the entire section, verses 13 through 36, as the miracles around the lake. And so Jesus resumes his, his lakeside ministry there on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But it's interesting that here in Matthew, as well as Mark's gospel, we have this account of the horrifying banquet scene of Herod immediately preceding and kind of leading up to this this feast where Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus the women and the children. Part of what inspired me to have us consider these two episodes together this morning were France's own words, where he commented on on the Herod episode, writing, the careful reader of Matthew might reflect on the contrast between this degenerate scene of Antipas's lavish feast with its sordid and tragic outcome and the wholesome simplicity of the feast which will follow. So this morning we're going to approach this text as careful readers of Matthew and sort of reflect on that contrast between these two feasts as sort of a way of helping us organize our thoughts as we meditate together on these events in our text before us. Our message this morning is this. The banquet of Herod's wickedness and pride gives way to the miracle feeding of Christ's compassion and self-sacrifice. And I have just two points, two main points under which we simply consider each of these two feasts. Our first point is this that Herod's is a banquet of wickedness and pride. Herod's is a banquet of wickedness and pride. I suppose the feast can in some ways be seen as something of a a symbol of the life of Herod. This was a self-exalting rebel against heaven who in the end was made to reap what he had sown. King Herod, he preferred to be called. Technically, he was, he was not a king. He was a tetrarch. He was a ruler of a minor principality in the Roman Empire, tetrarch of Galilee, or Galilee and Perea. His father, Herod the Great, had enjoyed the title king, but Rome never officially made Antimus king, despite the fact that he campaigned for it, but failed. Matthew does use the word 
king, you notice in verse 9, I suppose the term probably could be used in a, in a general way, but apparently he was sometimes referred to as king, I presume particularly by those who were seeking to flatter him, enjoy his favor. Well, John the Baptist was one who had not lived as a flatterer of words, had he? But as one who was a true prophet of the Lord, whatever he, he called Herod, he was not afraid to confront Herod with his sin. Herod had divorced his wife and then taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, as his own. And John told him, it seems persistently told him, it's not lawful for you to have her. John's story does not leave us uh, under any, any illusion that if you speak the truth and live courageously for the Lord, everything will go just right for you, right? His, his speaking the truth ended him up in, in prison where he remained until, until the day when they came and they took off his head. So this is a, a story, a message which does not lend itself well to a gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity, Right? I think it's a striking feature of both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that John's death, it's, it's presented almost as something of a, of a parenthetical note. I mean, if you look at our text in verse 2, you see that really the focus here is not on John, but on Jesus. Herod has heard of his, Christ's fame. It's as if the, the only reason that, that, that John's death here is recounted is to explain Herod's suspicion that perhaps Jesus is something of a resurrected John. And so it's in some ways almost like, like Matthew saying, oh yeah, by the way, I ought to mention what had happened to John. Could, could it have been that John might have been just sort of his, just, just faded into the background with all of the spotlight being completely and only on Christ at this point? We know, of course, that that this was no afterthought. This is, this is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And John's story, even if it is presented as something of a parenthetical note and a flashback, it's part of that wonderful spotlight which now shines upon Christ. And by the grace of Christ, as we think about John, his life, his ministry, his message, he, he's a great example of one who chose not the feast of Herod, as it were, right? Wickedness and self-exaltation. No, he was one who, who, who chose that of Christ in his humble and self-sacrificial service. We stop and think about it. John would have wanted no other way but that, that all of the spotlight would now be upon Jesus. John's testimony was that Jesus, he was the great I am. John, when they came to him and said, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? He would say, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. John was the great I am not. And he pointed to Jesus, the great I am. And he said, he must increase while I decrease. But back to our point here. Tragically, Herod was the polar opposite of John, his lavish Banquet was a, was a symbol of something of a life of self-indulgence, one who lived for his own pleasure rather than for God, one who, who cast God's law behind his back while following his own lawless ways. And so this brought him under the rebuke of the prophet of the Lord. But rather than humbling himself before the Lord and before his word, he exalted himself against the Lord by imprisoning John. We see in verse 5 that that he wanted to put him to death, but that he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Now, it seems that both both Herod and the whole situation here was a bit complex. Mark tells us that it was actually Herodias who wanted John 
dead, perhaps for fear of the people, Herod kept John in prison in order to keep him safe from his wife rather than dealing with his wife or his unlawful wife in a righteous way, uh, taking a stand against her murderous hatred of John as well as his own sin in this regard. He didn't deal with, with any of that in a righteous way. Was there any fear of God in Herod at all? Mark's gospel tells us in in 620 that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Interestingly, we even learn from Mark's gospel that, that, that Herod seemed to take some delight in listening to John, even though he found him a bit baffling. At any rate, it's quite clear that Herod did not walk in that true fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, that that walking in the way of the covenant. And it seems it was only a matter of time before his sin with respect to John would find him out. But again, how fitting that that would happen right there at this lavish banquet, celebrating his birthday at this banquet with so many guests, a banquet where, where they indulge their hunger for more than just food. They, they bring out this young girl, the daughter of Herodias, to dance before them. It was something of a, 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 deli, a belly dance, an atmosphere, no doubt, of pure sin, debauchery, and of foolish pride. And so her, her impressive and suggestive dance pleased Herod, and it It fed not only his sensual appetite, but it served to to feed his inflated ego. And so he decides to impress his guests by publicly making this foolish oath, promising to give her whatever she asks for. Wow, did that ever backfire on him? Well, what a moment this was to think that that prompted by her mother, this this young girl went and, and asked to have the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Amazing. That Herod was sorry, it says, but not moved with any kind of sorrow that would move him to true repentance, right? I mean, he should have refused the request. We're not bound to keep any oath which is unlawful. But Herod was a man who would rather commit murder than lose face before his guests, especially people of such importance, no doubt, as we're at that, that banquet. I think we can say that truthfully, this exposed the true evil not only of the banquet but of Herod himself, what little good he had done in in some ways of trying to show interest in or seeking to protect John. The truth is that Herod was an enemy. He was an enemy of the Lord. He was an enemy of the word of the Lord. He was an enemy of the people of the Lord. It's, It's really hard to even imagine what what a grisly scene that was to have this this request carried out. What a, what a terrible conclusion to the banquet, the perfect symbol, the perfect symbol of Herod's own evil. Herod was as those described in, in Psalm 14, the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. How fitting, albeit gruesome, to think about what was served on that platter as sort of the last course of the feast, as it were, gruesome, gruesome indeed, but, but, but we would do well to, 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 to let it hit us, feel the full weight of that, think about it. In fact, I would say if there are any here this morning who have never bowed the knee to Christ, you're not a follower of him, consider well that gruesome sight, there's a picture of the kingdom which you are choosing 
if you're refusing Christ. How awful. If you don't know Christ this morning, you're together yet with, with Herod. This is, that's your kingdom. That is your feast. And I promise you, friends, it is one which will leave you so empty, so unsatisfied. You can be sure that whatever appetite Herod had left at that point in the feast, it was completely spoiled. And look how it left him. And sadly, we don't, we don't know of any evidence that Herod ever repented and turned to the Lord. And it did not end well for Herod Antipas, by the way, in terms of his political career. He ended up dying in exile. But even in our text, he hears of the fame of Jesus, and he tells his servants, this must be John the Baptist. He's raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Was there a fear that kind of flowed out of the the guilt that he must have carried with him? He knew that the blood of the prophet was on his hands. Had he lived with superstitious fears that he might be sort of being haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist all of his life? At any rate, the news of the fame of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom, was not such good news for Herod. It was a reminder. It was a reminder that his banquet, his kingdom, as it were, was built on his own wickedness and his own pride, and it would only be a matter of time where it would fall. He would fall. It would be destroyed. But praise God. Praise God for the way that that his banquet gave way for that of Christ. And that brings us to our second, to our last point this morning, Herod's banquet. Herod's evil could not stop the other banquet, could not stop the kingdom of Christ. Our second point, it led to the miracle feeding of Christ's compassion and his self-sacrifice. I want us to note uh, particularly the verse which kind of links these two events, these two feasts. Verse 13, I, I, I considered having a separate sermon point just on this. So I want us to think about this. Uh, I, I love this verse. I could have preached a whole sermon on it, even though in many ways I find it a bit perplexing. For one thing, the, the, the chronology of events might strike us as a bit confusing. It says, when Jesus heard this, does the this there refer to John's death or does it refer to the event of Herod later, after John's death, hearing about the, the, the fame of Jesus and becoming interested in, Je- in Jesus, thinking that Jesus must perhaps be a resurrected John? Uh, another question we might ask would be, why didn't Herod hear of the fame of Jesus while John was in prison, such that he would have known that these were two separate individuals? Was this just sort of an irrational paranoia? More questions that sort of related to this. Did Jesus not immediately hear about the death of John? Or, or did Herod, hearing about the fame of Jesus and fearing that it was a resurrected John, did that, did that take place immediately after uh, John's execution? Seems like there should have been some, some time there. I, I'm not sure how to answer all of those questions. Uh, for me, the more important question before us this morning is, why did Jesus withdraw to a desolate place to be all alone? And I think as we think about that question, there, there are three reasons that I can think of worthy of our consideration. One is that Jesus wanted to avoid Herod. Uh, we, we saw similarly how Jesus withdrew into Galilee when he heard of John's arrest back in chapter 4 and verse 12. 
Now, this, of course, is not because Jesus was unwilling to suffer. He would not shy away from, but would willingly face his suffering and his death at the appointed time. But in the meantime, as his hour had not yet come, it was, it was prudent for him to avoid Herod. Another reason, the reason Jesus withdrew to a desolate place to be by himself, I think he needed some time to, to, to be alone, to, to process, to mourn John's death. We do well to remember this morning that, that Jesus was a true human. He was just like we are, with a real body and reasonable soul. And John was his human cousin. John was also the, the, the last prophet of the old covenant. And as, as we stop and think about how this news, even perhaps thinking about it and being reminded of it, if this happened sometime later, how this would have affected Jesus on so many levels, certainly emotionally. The thought of what had happened to John was no doubt devastating. Yet how did he respond to such a painful reality? Jesus never wavered in finishing his race. And that brings us to another reason why Jesus uh, went to a desolate place alone. I believe wonderfully and most importantly that he sought his God and in spending time alone with God, he, he resolved and was, was strengthened by God in his resolve to suffer. There's the self-sacrifice we see him speaking of. His resolve to, to, to suffer, to finish the work given him by the Father. We do well to remember that this attack on John, John's death, really was an attack on Christ himself. That's why the focus of the previous section is not on John, per se, but on Jesus. John had suffered as the one who had prepared the way for the Christ. This was Christ's suffering. This was Christ's suffering, suffering of which John was blessed to participate. And John is blessed. And John will be blessed to share in Christ's eternal reward. But, But for Jesus, John's sufferings were a painful reminder that the world hated him and it would only be a matter of time before he himself would suffer indeed he would suffer in ways far far greater than John had suffered being beheaded in prison would be far preferred over crucifixion any day but even more than more than the the, the physical pain or the public shame and humiliation of the cross we know what Jesus would face He would face the eternal wrath of God because of our sins as he would bear the curse, the judgment that we deserve. And we can praise God this morning that confronted by every painful reminder of all that he would endure, Jesus did not run away from it. it. Again and again, where did he go? Alone to be with his God, to purpose, to finish that work which the, the Father had given him. And why? so that out of his self-sacrifice there might be a feast, a feast not of wickedness, not of pride. Christ is the total opposite of Herod, not one who is cruel and willing to sacrifice others to further his own interests or to preserve himself. No, he's the opposite of that. Christ is full of love. Christ is full of self-sacrifice. Christ is full of, of compassion. Look at what we see in verse 14. 
I think I've perhaps shared this before, but verse 14 of our, of our text is a verse that was so helpful to me as a, a missionary in Africa. That the needs were so great there that sometimes it would feel overwhelming as so many people might come with various requests and seeking help. At times you'd just feel like screaming, don't you know, I've got my own problems, would you just, just leave me alone? I can, I can uh, confess that I didn't always respond so very well to the pressures of the ministry there. By the way, that might bring a word of application. How, how do you respond to the pressures of life? You know, when it feels overwhelming, do you, are you like Christ? Do you go alone and spend that time? Are you regularly before the Lord spending time drawing near to God, finding grace, finding strength to, 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 to press on in, in, in your faith? But, but we have to marvel at the Savior that we see in our text this morning. Here in his moment of weakness, mourning John's loss and no doubt being reminded of his own imminent suffering. How did he respond to all of the crowds? It says when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just a wonderful picture of what the gospel is? Out of his suffering, out of his weakness will flow forth blessing the blessing of compassion, the blessing of healing, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of feeding. You know, I'm thinking that, that, that perhaps it was the disciples who were feeling a bit overwhelmed by the crowds in our text. Here by evening time, they were, they're ready to say, send them away. Right? There's a des- this is a desolate place. No food around here. What are we going to do? Send them away. Ah, but this is the Christ This is the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the one who is greater than Moses, that great servant whom the Lord used to feed his people in the the wilderness, that manna from heaven. This is the one who is greater than the prophet Elisha, who had performed a similar feeding miracle in 2 Kings chapter 4. If the Lord made miraculous provisions of bread through his old covenant servants, the prophets and Moses and Elisha, certainly the Christ is able to feed his people. And what a beautiful thing happens. What a marvelous reversal from Herod's banquet. That, that, that lavish feast had become a place of famine, spiritually speaking. But look what happens in our text. It kind of reminds me of the words of, of Mary in, in, in that great song of Mary, the Magnificat, where she says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away Empty, Luke 1, verse 53. Note the reversals in our text. Here the place of loneliness and solitude is turned into a place filled with large crowds. The place of scarcity is is, is suddenly filled with abundance. They started with just five loaves and two fish, and they all ate. And they all ate, not just a small portion. This wasn't just a bite, as some have suggested, maybe just a symbolic feeding here. No, they all ate and they had their fill. Note all of the leftovers, leftovers. That's something I can appreciate. I'm kind of known in my household as the leftover king. I can go into the refrigerator and find out whatever's left and almost spoiling and throw it together in some concoction. And my family's saying, what on earth are you eating? I say, no, this is pretty good. You can try this. (laughs) They're saying, glad you're enjoying it, but no thank you. And get it out of my face. 
Brothers and sisters, I think we can all agree this morning that the leftovers of the banquet of the kingdom of Christ are infinitely greater than even the finest choice foods of the banquet of the kingdom of this world. Far, far, far more satisfying. How satisfied they were. What wonderful, miraculous provision. Again, just five loaves and two fish suddenly multiplied to feed 5,000 plus the women and the children. Twelve baskets full, we see, of broken pieces. Is that a connection to the 12 tribes of Israel, which are fulfilled in the 12 apostles of Christ? Uh, Indeed, I think we have something of a great sign of, of things to come in terms of the future apostolic ministry. I think this can certainly by way of illustration, uh, reinforce what Pastor Holst was teaching us last week in Sunday school in terms of exposing the, the, the error of liberalism, which was creeping into the church and masquerading as Christianity. But I'm thinking particularly of the notion that we, could, we should see the teaching of the apostles as being at odds with the teaching of Jesus, right? So, so follow Jesus, but don't follow Paul or Peter. no. We know that it was the the plan of Jesus all throughout his ministry. We see this evidence that he was gathering around himself the 12, those who would be witnesses of all that he had done and his death, his resurrection, and they would go forth proclaiming the message of the kingdom through their preaching and their teachings and their writings. It would be Jesus who would send them and empower them by his spirit, which means that it would be his work working through them. It would be his word which they were proclaiming. He would say to them, as it were, you give them something to eat. You cannot eat the bread of Christ's word without receiving it from the hand of his apostles. And so this is a reminder to us, a commitment to the word of God, to the Bible, It's a call to be faithful as a church in proclaiming that word. It's a call to be devoted to that word in those times of solitude when we meet with the Lord to fill ourselves with the word of Christ. This is the word which we we seek to proclaim from our pulpits and is by that word that Christ faithfully feeds his people. The preached word. And even the visible word of the sacrament. I think this event is indeed also sort of intended to point forward that, that, that language of verse 19 of Jesus taking the bread, blessing the bread, giving thanks, breaking the bread, giving it to his disciples, exactly what we'll see in chapter 26, verse 26, with the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. Of course, the, the supper is a, is a, is a, it also points forward a foretaste of that great meal where we will eat and drink with Christ in his, at his messianic banquet in glory. But as we look forward to that day, we were not left famished, are we? We're fed with his word. It's the true and faithful word. It's a sufficient word. And it's a word which will go forth. I think this makes it for another connection to the John the Baptist event, another link between the two feasts. You know, you stop and think, what was John's role? Well, as a prophet of the Lord, he had been called, in so many words, to give them something to eat. Feed the people the prophetic word as you prepare and make way for the Messiah. Well, what happens in our text? Herod may have ended the life of John the Baptist, but the word of God would not die. John's prophetic ministry 
That really would live on. It's, 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 it's taken up and is part of the ministry of the apostles. Here we have it in Matthew's gospel. This is part of the gospel of Christ. God's word will go forth, and it will go forth with such wonderful abundance, sufficient to feed the whole world as the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the Messiah would go forth, and it will be established among all of the nations. We should rejoice and glory in that truth, and that should encourage us even what what we'll do, Lord willing, later as we have our part in calling a minister of the gospel who will go forth and proclaim that word. What blessing, what glory. Friends, which, which feast will you choose? There really is no choice to be made but to choose for Christ. Have you not tasted? Have you not seen that Jesus is so good? Have you not tasted of his, the goodness of his self-sacrifice and his wonderful compassion for you? Christ has not sent you away hungry. He's called you unto himself, and he has fed you, and he has fed you so richly, even his own flesh and blood given for you. In him, your heavenly Father has, has been pleased to give to you the kingdom. Will you not today make that kingdom the kingdom which you seek? Will you not feed upon and live out of its lavish abundance? Will you not abide in, in Jesus the King and bear much kingdom fruit? Now, you and I may not be called to suffer in prison and, and die a martyr's death. I don't think we're called to, to do miracle feedings in the wilderness. But every bit as much as those disciples in our, our text, we are called in following Christ to do the impossible. Perhaps there's something specific in your life the Lord is calling you to do, and you feel like, I just can't do it. It's like the Lord is saying, you do it. Feed them. Well, you're right. You cannot do it. And you're not called to do it of yourself. The obedience to which Christ calls you is an obedience which you are only to do by his grace, out of his lavish, abundant grace to you. You and I are called to to forsake the self-exalting pride and the ungodly sensual passions and the self-indulgence of the kingdom of this world. We're called to forsake all that, to forsake ourselves in turn and follow Christ as heirs of his kingdom of grace. We're, we're called to be as Jesus. We're called to clothe ourselves with his compassion. We're called to be generous and give ourselves to self-sacrificial service. And since we're called to do like the woman that we'll read about much later in chapter 26, that woman who came and she took her most costly possession, that, that expensive ointment, and she cracked it, opened the flask, and she poured it on the head of Jesus. Jesus, she gave all that she had unto Jesus. Should we not be encouraged to go and do likewise? Let us, out of God's lavish, abundant grace, as he's fed us so well, let us give ourselves into lavish service of Christ and of one another. May God help us to do just that. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we bless you, God of Israel. How we thank you for the wondrous things which you have done, which we've heard once again this day. We thank you for the testimony of the old covenant prophets even for that one John, his life and his death, his ministry. We thank you for how it so wonderfully it points us to Christ. 
and for the testimony of the new covenant apostles and prophets. Oh, Lord, you have poured out upon us such blessing, and we bless you, and we praise you, and we pray, oh God, that you would cause your word to fill us this day and dwell in us by your spirit, making us to be more like our Savior, O Lord, that we might walk as he did in all ways that please you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.